Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy Vet Phil Briggs reporting for the Military News and Veteran Lifestyle website, ConnectingVets.com. Now, in this segment, we are going to unpack a film that recently was shown on PBS over Veterans Day weekend. It is by far a stunning look at World War II and really just a detailed look at one specific incident, the crash of a B-17 in Austria. And an Austrian retiree named George, whose mother witnessed the crash, and then later in life, as a retired guy, he takes up metal detecting to find the wreckage. A growing fascination leads him to embark on a heartfelt mission to learn more about the American crew members who actually parachuted off the plane into enemy territory. What he discovered is nothing short of incredible. And here to talk to us about the film The Metal Detector is Brendan Patrick Hughes, the producer and director along with Mick Barry, who's been cited in the San Francisco Chronicle as a local phenom, having written and performed three critically acclaimed one-man shows. And as it relates to our conversation today, he's also the son of one of the American service members involved in that B-17 crash in Austria. So with that, let's first say hello to film director Brendan Hughes. Brendan, how are you, sir? Fantastic, Philip. Thanks so much for having me on the air. Indeed. And Mick Barry, father, World War II veteran, and uh, so much to unpack with your story after I watch this film. Mick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Philip. It's great to meet you and be here. Let's start just kind of 30,000 foot view. Um, how did you even come upon this story as a filmmaker? Um, and, you know, how did it, you know, what's the genesis for you? So here's what happened uh, in around uh, April of 2019, my cousin Amelia went to see Mick in a perform a one man show in San Francisco. And she knew Mick because Mick has been teaching her son drums for many years. Um, she went up to him afterwards, blown away by the show and asked him about it. And actually, Mick, I can hand it over to you because you were part of that conversation. Uh, and the, the short answer before I hand it over to Mick is when Amelia heard Mick describe what he was about to do, she called me immediately. Uh, 
I'm uh, a filmmaker. My wife is a cinematographer. And she said, we have to get Emily to go with Mick and be a fly on the wall when this thing is about to happen. So, Mick, let me hand it over to you for that conversation. Yeah, I was performing my show, Dad Fought Hitler, The Bottle of Me, which I hadn't done in about 22 years because I was warming it up for Austria, getting ready to go do a performance on the 75th anniversary of my father's plane crashing and him and his crew members parachuting out. And the way I got a chance to do this was previous October, I got a call with a man who had a thick accent asking to get in touch with me. Turned out his mother saw my father and his crew members parachute from the plane. He grew up wondering what had happened to them, and he got in touch with us, the children of the crew members, for the 75th anniversary of the plane crash. And he said, I've always wondered what had happened to him. I said, you want to know? I can tell you, my father wrote the whole story down one month after he returned in July of 1945. He wrote, hired a secretary, dictated the whole story. He wrote it down, and I turned it into a one-man play in which I talk about his World War II experience, his experience as a year of being a prisoner of war in Austria, Germany, and northeastern Poland, so I said, I've got all the details here. Do you want to? And he said, do you want to come perform on the 75th anniversary? I said, I'm buying my plane ticket right now. It was a once in a lifetime. It was crazy. This guy contacted me across the Atlantic Ocean who'd been working on the same material I had, but I hadn't had a chance to really have the thing see the light of day. He wanted to know what happened. I had all the details. What are the chances of that? Amazing. And it's so well done. It's so well captured because you get at the very beginning, George and his wife, and they're making phone calls to find people. And you did not hit zero to talk to us as the operator. And the wife is like, the the operator cannot help us. They're never helpful. And it's just, <laughs> I just loved how it kind of tracks. Here's this guy making random cold calls after discovering a library book and learning about a website of veterans of B-17 crews. And he's able to kind of knit step-by-step find these veterans. What are some of your favorite parts of the assembly of the film and the things that you were able to see while documenting this, Brendan? Well, there's so much that I had to leave out, to be honest with you, um, in order to get it down to 26 minutes for the PBS cut. I came from the theater uh, along. I've been a theater director my entire life. And so for this to have a theatrical element in Mick's show was incredible. And watching Mick's performance on tape, uh, in addition to watching the impact of the performance on the faces of his fellow children of these airmen in the audience is one of the most moving things for me about the entire thing. And another one is actually sneaks by very quickly in the beginning. Georg talks in the beginning of the film about why he decided to look for this airplane because his mother witnessed it crashing into a neighboring hillside. And he says, very simply, I was very worried about those young men that parachuted out of the plane. To me, the driving force of this film being the fact that Georg had so much empathy for these young men, even though their their peril that he was worrying about had happened 75 years before his worrying, you know, like his worrying transcended that span of time. He had that much compassion that he wanted to make sure these men 
were okay. And I find that, uh, and what it says about the echoes of war and the human heart um, to be one of the most compelling and beautiful parts of this whole story. Let's dive into a little bit of the story here. Of course, again, we're talking about the metal detector, the documentary film here that covers and, and, and really chronicles the lives of these American service members who crashed in Austria in a B-17. And Georg, as you'd mentioned, a local Austrian there, just found it fascinating. And with his metal detector, goes on these hikes up in the woods. And as you two, as you and Mick Berry get together, Mick's actually doing this one-man play, performing it, warming it up again after he wrote it decades ago called My Dad Fought Hitler, The Bottle, and Me. Your ticket then was already booked. You were actually going to join the other descendants of these World War II service members that Georg was able to find. Have you all come to Austria? Tell me a little bit about what that was like, including the really cool scene. You guys all go into the woods together and you do something very cool together. Kind of tell me about what it was like to get to Austria and, uh, you know, to walk in those pathways. Well, it was really mind blowing because I'd done a different show about Keith Moon four days before. And then I had to get back to San Francisco from Wenatchee, Washington, no sleep, get to L.A., catch my plane to Austria from L.A. It was just a whirlwind of uh, activity. And I didn't really have time to think. Plus, I'm going over the lines to perform the show on the plane while I'm flying to Austria to make sure I remember everything. I've been rehearsing it. I'm lining through the play on the flight to get there, get to London, then fly to Austria, take the Uber over to Georg's house. It was just a whirlwind of activity. They feed me dinner, and then I get in bed at 10 o'clock that night, Monday night, and I just I just started crying for about 10 minutes because I realized the last time anybody of my blood flowing through his veins, the last time anybody was here that I was physically related to was when my father was here 75 years before when he was shot down. And you hear the stories, you read about World War II, but this stuff was real. And it became so real for me at that moment. And it had such a momentum on its own. Being there was just riding the wave of this, the passion of Georg to pull this together and the emotion that we all had. And meeting everybody, I'd never met these people before, and the one thing we had in common is our fathers survived so that we were now alive and could meet each other. And when it came the time to perform the play, often actors try to make sure they're emotionally connected to the material and they're psyched up for the shit. This was just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other because the emotion was so palpable and everybody in the audience sensed it. When it was occurring, the world was torn apart. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran and journalist Phil Briggs. Today we're talking about the short film, The Metal Detector. It's a World War II veteran story with a modern twist. The film follows a retired Austrian man who discovers pieces of a B-17 that crashed in his Austrian town during World War II. He eventually discovers the names of the crew and is able to find their relatives still living in America. 
We're talking with Mick Berry, who created a one-man play about his father, the B-17's tail gunner, and filmmaker Brendan Hughes about what it was like making the film. I asked Mick about the part of the film that documents meeting with the sons and daughters of these brave World War II service members and a special trip into the woods where it all started. Going to the hillside, Georg brings along his metal detector and we go fishing again for parts. And so he let uh, Sherry, the daughter of um, Robert Zimmerman, if I go with her metal detector, oh, we got something we got. And she dug and she found a bullet. And he said, okay, Mick, now it's your turn. And we didn't know what we we're going to, okay, wait, we got to, we got to beep. We got to beep. And then I dug with a spade and I pulled up a square of a piece of metal. Georg knew what this was because he'd done, I wouldn't have known, but it was a piece of a flak jacket. For all I know, this was the very flak jacket my father was wearing or a spare flak jacket or somebody's flak jacket in the actual plane that my father and all of his crew members had parachuted from. It was insanely moving and bewildering, you know? It was just beyond description, and it we were all overwhelmed with the experience. Brendan, how long had you been rolling video before they actually started finding things? Because in the film, it's as if like we jump cut from the reunion and the hugs in a living room. And then, of course, we get to going on this path and like doing some metal detecting and maybe we can find an artifact or two. It looks as if as soon as they get there, like they're finding something. Was it really that instantaneous? Oh, um, Mick, you can probably answer this better than me. Um, I believe it or not, I was in Los Angeles um, the entire time sort of producing from from here while my wife, Emily, was on the ground. After the phone call from Amelia, Emily was on the plane in, I think, four days. And, uh, <laughs> and she was just ready to go, you know, wheels up. And she was with you guys for, I think it was a four-day affair, wasn't it, Mick? Yeah, or something right, like right. Yeah. And I think we've got like 48 hours of footage or something insane. Yeah. But from my recollection, finding the pieces, it was instantaneous. Garrick said, okay, this is where the plane crashed. And we, we met the father of the monastery that owned the land. And he said, okay, here are our metal detectors. Here we go. I don't think it took more than 10 minutes. I mean, bam, there's a piece. Damn, there's a piece in Georg said, well, I think we call that success. I don't know if we'd find anything. I wouldn't have known. For all I knew, you just stick out your metal detector and you're going to find something. But it was instantaneous. It didn't. We didn't weren't slaving away at all. We were prepared to work more than about 10 or 15 minutes. Was that day one or day two, Mick? Or I think that was the first day. I believe that wow. was the first day. Wow. So moving. And again, again, you can only imagine what it's like to sit and hold a piece of history. I mean, from the from the outset, when the documentary is showing just Georg and his wife up there in the woods and he's pulling a bullet out, that's not deeply buried at all. And then you, you kind of look at the bottom of it and you can see the shell casing says 1943. And like you're touching something that hasn't been touched by human hands since the day that plane went down. You're right. I've got them right over there. I've got the piece of the flag jacket. I've got a bullet that we found. It's right over there on my dresser. What really strikes me about that particular element, too, is the fact that in Austria, the history and the blood and the twisted metal of this war and its atrocities are inches below the surface of their soil. And so they, in a way, therefore, feel not exempt from deep examination of their own history, because everywhere you go, you're tripping on the past itself. 
and relics of things that happened and suffering that occurred. And I learned a word, a German word in the course of making this film, which is um, Erinnerungskultur, which means remembrance culture. And it's something where it's a phenomenon in Germany and Austria where they will very in a very stern and deliberate way face their past faced face the havoc the chaos and the suffering they wreaked on the continent and on the world in order so that the atrocities of the past will not be repeated and they live it they learn it very early in school what happened you know um and they uh there's a in fact right now in the news it's very sad because there's an Anne Frank school that suddenly parents are saying they're having a hard time explaining to their kids. It's an elementary school in Germany. But this is that is a departure from this ethic for the last 75 years in Germany and in Austria of being uh, of just sort of a collective, what have we done? And Georg embodies that. And the fact that the history is so under such a thin veil on the surface of the ground um, reinforces it. That's amazing. Let's talk a little bit about history. Some of the things you can glean from this short film, again, The Metal Detector, recently aired on PBS, but is now available to stream. Some of the descriptions, some of the things we learn from Mick, from your father's detailed account of this crash, I was taken with the description of being a tail gunner. And that blew my mind. Open up a little bit about the life of a tail. Yeah. Um, well, as I think you know, the tail was the most vulnerable part of a B-17 because there was one gunner protecting it. If you attacked a B-17, you never attacked a B-17 from the front because there was a gun in the front. There was a top turret. There was a bottom turret. Now, there were side turrets, but also with the side turrets, you had the top turret and the bottom turret helping you out with the tail. Nope. You are on your own, buddy. The tail gunner had to be the sharpest marksman on the plane. He was the most vulnerable. The Germans knew that B-17s were vulnerable in the tail because there was only one gun. If you attacked a B-17, you attacked it from the tail. And my father said on his first mission, officer came up to him and said, you're the tail gunner? Let's go. You got a cleanup job. And he had to hose out the guts and entrails of the previous tail gunner to clean it up, to which the officer said, don't worry, you're not going to have to suffer too long because you only see 10 seconds of combat before you're killed. And my father said, you know, by the time he got shot down, he chalked up over two and a half hours of combat. Oh, my God. How do you do this? Now, the thing is, my father was a great storyteller. So I take this with a grain of salt, but at the same time, (laughs) He didn't have to exaggerate a lot here. He told me there were 350 tail gunners in the 15th Army Air Corps station out of Foggia, Italy. He said he, out of 350, he was ranked number two. Number two. And I said to him, God, you must have been good. And he said, I won't use the expletives. You're, you're right, I was good. I didn't want to get killed. It's, uh, you know, you want to be good at shooting pool or you want to be good at fishing. But what do you have to be good at in which you are protecting your own life? And everybody in the B-17, they all were relying on each other. And they all knew that everybody was terrified. My father said that Jim Health, I forget Jim's role, he might have been the radio man. But he said whenever they were flying through heavy flak, Jim's hands would shake like he had palsy. 
And they all knew, they all knew that they were all afraid. My father says, we all knew that we were afraid and we grew to love the fear and to welcome it because it was a companion that you always had. Without this fear, we would have really been lost. It was the fear that gave us the strength to do the missions, which is just, it was just terrible. And it was common army procedure. I don't know what's done now. Back then, the it was the Army Air Corps until World War II, and then it was changed to the name Air Force, but they still called it the Air Corps. After each mission, shot of booze, shot of booze to help you calm your nerves. Standard procedure. Wait, you got off the plane and you were given one shot. Wow. You didn't know that? Oh, yeah, that was standard army procedure. And I checked with Jim Health, whom I met several years uh, later, and he said, yep, yeah, that was it. You got off the plane. You got a shot of booze to calm it's, down. It's no wonder these guys developed uh, issues with b- booze after right. after the war and tried to basically keep a buzz on for decades to try and prevent right. the memories from coming back. Well, the pattern with addiction, I've, I've talked with people in the field, it's use, abuse, addiction. So right there, you've got the use of it. Now, what you do with that use, you get back and you say, I better not keep this up or, hey, I can use booze to calm down. I know I can. I'm going to keep doing it. As we examined moments from the film, including the play, which plays a pivotal role, we drifted into talking about PTSD. I found it interesting because we don't often discuss that part of the greatest generation's post-war experience, and we rarely seem to dive into the PTSD and the alcoholism and addictive behaviors that seemed just as present back then as they do right now. What else are they going to do? They don't know how to calm these men down. You get off the plane, you're a wreck. You got to do something. And do it again tomorrow morning. And they also came back from the war, not into the society we have now that has so much awareness about mental health and it, and the struggles we all face. They were completely on their own. And it breaks my heart to think like they just had to figure out a medication solution for themselves and what to do with these gigantic tsunamis of emotion that came into them you know and it's so sad that that they were by themselves couldn't talk to anyone about it and would sometimes turn this emotion towards their families yeah my father said it was two to three years of nightmares when he returned yeah that's something i I was going to save this question for the end as we look back and reflect on that greatest generation but we've walked right into it i think it's incredible uh the title of the one-man show that you do uh, based on your dad's writings here is called my father fought Hitler, the bottle and me. Is it safe to say that like, as we walked right into this topic here that, you know, what we're seeing today, the PTSD that veterans are having and that we're talking about the importance of mental health, this all existed in the greatest generation. Only we just don't talk about it. Are we ignoring the fact that these are the sons and daughters who didn't always have happy lives because their dads were veterans and that were coping with booze. And what types of, what types of themes do you explore in this play? Well, uh, and actually the play is quite a happy play in the end, but it's what it takes to get there because I talk about the problems I had with my father, but the play is about 
the reconciliation and the love that we ended up having for and knowing and expressing for each other. And it also is culminates with his being freed from the prison camp at the end of World War II. And so it's interesting with PTSD, you know, George Carlin did a routine on that. The term always changes. Back in World War I was called shell shock. And I've looked into this. And it's interesting because not everybody becomes an alcoholic. Not everybody finds it as hard to deal with as others. But it was interesting. World War One, I, I think, was the first case where people were realizing, oh, my God, these men are torn apart. And the psychologist, I don't remember his name, who found the cure for shell shock, it's not what most people think. It was to take these men that were severely suffering from shell shock back to the field of battle in France so that they could see the battle was over. And they were terrified to go. But he and people he worked with would lead them back into the field of battle, back to the field of battle, so they could see the war was over. That was the cure that worked for them. And, you know, you were talking earlier before we began the the podcast or the broadcast here that we've all experienced trauma in our life. But the thing that works is to expose people to the conditions that under safe conditions, of course, you don't take them back to a war zone, but whatever it is, whether you're afraid to cross a bridge, you gradually expose yourself to it and see what it is you're telling yourself that makes it hard to do it. And in the, I don't know specifically with these World War I veterans, but uh, they would see that they were now safe. Uh, my wife, Emily, shot a documentary about a scientist in Amsterdam who is doing some studies about exposure therapy, where if someone is terrified of tarantulas, they she sort of brings them into a room with a tarantula. But before she does, she gives them beta blockers so that their heart won't beat faster. And it apparently has these like massive effects where it's just curing people of their phobias because so much of this is also sort of rooted in the body and the physiological responses you have. You know, like I see the bear, I run. And running makes me scared. You know what I mean? And so there's, I think finally now there are some solutions. That's amazing that in World War One this guy figured that out. That's I'm, that's fascinating. I read about it because, you know, doing the show, I, I wanted to find out more about PTSD and everything else. And, uh, you know, in the play, my father put us through a harrowing uh, circumstances, and it's very terrible when your father gets in a head-on collision on the freeway drunk and still refuses to drink. Okay, now my life wasn't in danger, but emotionally, how much does that shake you up when you've got a parent who, unfortunately, the man he ran into did not die, but <clears throat> alcoholism, addiction, people refuse to give it up. And when you're intimately connected with people like that. It is a personal challenge for you not to be torn apart when you see somebody you care about and love so much refusing to give up their addiction, refusing to stop harming themselves, and you have no control over it. How do you live with that? That's part of what I talk about also. But like I said, ultimately, it's a very happy, beautiful experience, which, you know, you got to get to what is it? You want to embrace life and and love it, but you can't deny the anguish that there is in it. How do you embrace life with so much anguish? And I think that ultimately, seriously, I think that's what our 
documentary is about. It's about the way you can embrace life in spite of the horrible, seemingly devastating experiences that it contains. So well said, Bob. A very poignant moment that you were just describing, Mick, is in the film. And it's just a little clip of, again, the play that is My Father Fought Hitler, The Bottle and Me. And there's this one part of it where, like, you're reenacting what this gentleman's conversation with his wife would have been like. And she's begging him to quit drinking. And he's like, I'm not going to stop drinking. I'm gonna, I'll pick up a chair and I'm going to throw a chair at you. And he's, he, <laughs> he, you can hear that, like you know, old stalwart 1950s kind of attitude. The man's right. I'm not going to stop. I know what I'm doing. Stiff up <laughs> lip back. Stiffen your yeah. spine. You know, you can hear that attitude that was pervasive in the 50s. The man ran the house. I know what I'm doing. I don't need help. I'm not weak. I fought the Germans. Mm. And it's repeated in the GWAT generation today. Only I really hope that we're not just glossing over what we thought was to be an idyllic decade of the 50s. And it was all great. The men returned home from war and made families and businesses. Nah, man, we overlook a lot of yes. their demons and we lose it in history. And then thus in this generation, war fighters out there are thinking, I, I, I need to have this because my grandfather didn't complain and moan and whine. No, your grandfather probably drank every day and started at about nine in the morning. And you don't want to repeat the sins of the father. And what I loved about what this film did is it took the children of this hangover generation of the World War II returning vets. It took you guys, brought you together. And some of you even had closure with each other over these lived experiences that you all could relate to. And I thought it was just so well done. Um, I want to jump into like well, another couple of details here real quick, just because I, I I thought they were fascinating. Mick, share with me the line that uh, he used when they knew they had to jump. They knew the plane was going down, <laughs> leaking fuel. It's on fire. Right, I love right, the line. Right, that was just right, so matter right. of fact. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, my father, was. he said I crouched in the hatchway and looked carefully to see if anyone had jumped yet. I was anxious about going first. If the fire was out, the plane would get back, and I'd be left floating down to Austria by myself. I asked Jim if there was anything we could do. Jim said the only thing to do is get the hell out of this flying coffin. <laughs> Crazy. One incredible part of the documentary is the drone camera footage. In one scene, the drone captures the actual descent path to a tree where one crew member of the B-17 landed, and he remained there until he was discovered by locals. It's amazing to look at that going, this is what they saw as they parachuted down. It's, it's phenomenal. But how did the guy get out of the tree was my question. It was not really spelled out in the film. Georg says that the townspeople cut him down. And the parachute was in the tree until 10 years ago. Finally, somebody got the parachute out of the tree. Up until 10 years ago, that parachute was stuck in the tree. It's a funny thing about the pa the parachutes. They were pure silk also. And uh, a lot of times the... Austrians would harvest parachutes that were stuck in the forest and use them for wedding dresses, which I think is an incredibly lovely image for uh, the spoils of war and the way that life will always insist on itself. Yeah, they, they were the right color. They were white. 
And uh, incidentally, just to throw in the spoils of war, most people aren't aware of this. 10% of nuclear warheads from Russia are used to power electrical plants in the U.S. <laughs> How about that for the spoils of war? And people aren't aware of that. 10% of the U.S. electrical power comes from former Russian warheads. This is just full of fun facts, man. I had no idea. And, and wedding dresses isn't exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking since they were real silk, like there's some nice sheets out there or some jammies or something. <laughs> that is awesome. Wedding dresses. Oh, very cool. Yeah, there's a longer uh, version of the of the film. This, there's a 40-minute version that has a lot of other scenes, and one of them is with the guy who cut the guy down from the tree who talks about his father uh, taking, going to, uh, collect all the, with a wagon. The guy had broken his leg when he landed in the tree and collect him and bring him back. Um, and there's all sort there's, it's just amazing that the different things they did. You mentioned another, there's another scene where that we only flash to where the descendants are all standing in a line shoulder to shoulder in a town called Ubelbach, where all of them, all of the men were gathered after they were captured one by one in the woods by Nazis and by Nazi sympathizers in the town. And uh, there was one Nazi officer who was yelling at them, and he went and kicked one of the guys in the crotch. Uh, but there were enough people in this town that hated the Nazis. It was sort of it seemed like it was about half and half, the people that supported the Nazis in the Anschluss and people who hated the Nazis. And a young woman whose parents owned a shop nearby was watching the whole ordeal and ran out after the Nazi kicked one of the guys in the in the crotch. And, he, and she slapped the Nazi in the face. And his hat flew off, which yeah. was incredibly brave of her to do, you know. And he said, it doesn't matter. They'll all be killed anyway. And then they were all put onto a um, a wagon and brought to their POW camps. And he told her, you know, I could kill you for doing that. He didn't. But he said, I could kill you for doing that. We didn't get to meet her because she had died a few years before. But there were so many mind-blowing experiences, one after the other. And there are two guys in the film that talk about seeing the plane coming over the hill and seeing these things fall from it, thinking they were bombs, and then the parachute open. Oh, those are people. These are two guys in their 80s that were little kids, 10 and 8 years old, when my father parachuted from the plane, and I got to meet them. It was incredible. They were, we were on the same hillside, and they said, yeah, the plane came over there. They're in their 80s now. They saw it as little kids whose grandfather captured my father. He's now a young man of about 35 or so, but I met him, and his grandfather was the one who captured my father. Wow. We're all hugging each other and talking about this. We're amazed just to meet. And, and you know, another thing about the men being captured, you don't know if the people who captured them were actually good-hearted because there were servicemen who got shot. And some of the men who were capturing the servicemen, captured them for their protection to get them under the domain of b being a prisoner of war. Because if you're roaming around the countryside, you could be shot, and nobody, nobody would be reprimanded for it. That was something I thought was really cool about what you included in the film. There's a monument on the side of the road there, and it was talking about where U.S. service members were often captured and, you know, not always saved by locals. And it kind of blew my mind because they were captured and delivered over to the Nazis. And I think of Austrians as the sound of music, you know, the hills are alive and we love the Americans. They are our partners. We love them. And they're wonderfully warm hearted people that can sing and dance circa 
1940s, politics played in. And some people for their own local survival were like, well, the Nazis are here. They're going to either kill us or I'm going to, you know, play along. So some of the townspeople would have been, uh, you know, maybe not in favor of Nazis, but they sure as heck were loyal on a political angle. And it shows you how confusing it was that even these uh, neutral Austrians were siding with the enemy. And when they saw Americans, it was it, it was expedient for them to deliver our service people over to the Nazi regime. And it gets worse, too, because some of them there were there were definitely uh, fascists uh, in the in these towns. And some of the American airmen, 200 parachuted into Austria and were captured by locals and lynched on the spot. No. Um, and they were they were incentivized by the Nazis to do this. But there were there were some there were some that were very pro fascism and what what and it was it's must have been absolutely terrifying for these servicemen to escape peril from the air only then to be uh murdered on the ground yeah make no mistake philip there were austrians that were as pro-nazi as anybody was pro-nazi my father talks about when they got to vienna and they were marched through town there were about 50 of them uh an old man hit him with his cane uh a woman spit in his face they they were uh, being, and he said all 50 of them knew that they could not react to any of this or they might have been killed. Hmm. As we wrap, um, you were there. Of course, you went for the 70th, uh, the 75th anniversary of this crash, and uh, you went with the six other descendants of the B-17 crew. What's the feeling like, the power of human connection? We've had decades now to um, absorb the totality of World War II, to see the end of the Nazi regime and the allied forces that liberated Europe. Um, what's it like when you're talking to an Austrian about your family members and they know that you're a descendant of a U.S. service member? Describe that human connection you felt with the Austrians today. I think there's an underlying feeling of relief that we no longer are living under these circumstances. That seems to be one of the biggest emotional experiences that I think everybody has. And it becomes palpable when you meet people descended from what at one time was the enemy. And the Americans were viewed as the enemy by Austrians, except the ones who viewed the Nazis as enemies. But there is a pervading feeling and an experience of, oh, my God, we made it through it. Beyond that, there is, I think, an amazement from their side and my side. When I was performing the show in Austria, I was just blown away. I can't believe this is happening. While I'm performing this play and I have these people watching me, there was an overall awareness of this thing is so big. And we are looking, we are witnessing humanity at its depths and heights and the full gamut of human experience here. And it becomes inexpressibly profound and bigger than your life. Mick, so well said, man. So well said. In fact, it's captured in the conclusion of the film, too. I love the moments when, uh, you know, they're all doing a cheers and they're all doing a shot. This power of this human connection among the descendants and the local Austrians. It's beautiful. You feel it in those images. 
you know, those neat, beautiful looking streets of Austria and you're seeing some of the locals there, you know, one can only hope that in decades to come, we are talking about Afghanistan and Iraq in these same ways and that people over there can come together and have this brilliant human connection forged on the fact that we are all just momentarily here and we really do need to learn to love each other despite all these wars that just keep popping off. It was really, really well done and really well concluded. I just love the after feeling I got. So with that, let's talk about where we can catch this film. Uh, quickly, Brendan Hughes, tell me more about where I can find the metal detector and even that 40 minute version that you spoke of. Oh, yeah. So the 40 minute version is sort of under wraps at the moment. Uh, we don't know what, <laughs> what's going to happen with that in the future. Uh, but hey, if anyone wants to watch it, they can contact me and I'll send you a little link to it. But uh, <laughs> you can, uh, in order to see the film, you can see it um, uh, on its streaming is broadcasting on PBS stations all over the country. There are like 350 PBS stations I have learned in this process, and they all program at their own discretion. And so it will it will be continue. It will continue to pop up over the next three years. And in the coming days, it will appear nationwide on the PBS app. So if you have PBS Passport, you'll be able to watch this film anywhere you are um, in the next couple of days. Very cool. And Mick Berry, man, not only are you one of the most quotable guests I've had, but, uh, you know, <laughs> seconded. Say, dude, you're super talented. Your one man shows are, uh, travel throughout the country. Tell me more where I can find out about you, what you're up to, and, uh, you know, some of your performances. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I've got a website, mick-berry.com, M-I-C-K-B-E-R-R-Y.com. But the metal detector has a website, it's metaldetector.tv, right, Brendan? That's correct. Yeah, and uh, right now I have no shows scheduled. I've got people that want to bring me to San Diego. I've got somebody who wants to bring me to the Midwest. I'm trying to perform Dad Fought Hitler, the bottle of me, as much as I can. So anyway, the metaldetector.tv or mick-berry.com would be a way to get in touch with me. Roger that. And uh, absolutely love it. Love the Keith Moon hair, as I said at the onset of the interview, the uh, current project you're working on where you kind of recreate the life of Keith Moon. I, I can see it. And uh, you're a really talented, man. Uh, let's bring you to D.C. I will try to find a way to get the, your show somewhere in D.C. or at the National Veterans Museum because uh, it's a story worth hearing and it's definitely a story worth watching. Check out The Metal Detector on your local PBS station and uh, download the PBS app on your phone and you can stream it that way gentlemen thank you so much for your time brendan hughes mick berry pleasure man love getting to know you guys yeah thanks philip thanks so much philip we appreciate it Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. 
Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Dars. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.